who are joining us in the overflow. Thank you for uh, your patience and being with us even if you can't be in this space together with us. We have been in this series called This We Believe. It is a series of exploring our statement of faith, what we believe as the Bridge Church. It is important that we know and understand and even be able to articulate our beliefs as a church. We've said before that it's important for us to, to explore our statement of faith or our beliefs because it is one of the identifying markers of us as a local church. But it also gives identity to us not only as a local church, but also to like-minded church churches, especially those in the Evangelical Free Church of America and the Southern Baptist Convention as well. And so this morning, we want to explore what we believe concerning the church. We believe in the church. And so this morning, we're going to look at our statement of faith on the church. And my aim is to make sure we have somewhat of a coming understanding of the meaning of the church, the marks of the church, the mission of the church, and the management of the church. As I said last week when studying the Holy Spirit, I really need several weeks in order to do justice to this topic. However, we are simply scratching the surface concerning what we believe. The, the great thing about expositional preaching is in coming days, as we go through different books of the Bible, we'll still be able to deal with this doctrine of the church. And so we'll be able to pull out some of the specifics concerning the doctrine of the church as we just preach expositionally through books of the Bible in the future. But today, we're not, we won't necessarily be preaching expositionally. It'll be more of a topical sermon. We'll look at several verses in their context that deal with this doctrine called the church. Let's look together at our statement of faith concerning the church. Here is what we believe concerning the church. We believe the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of, of Christ over which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly expressed the gospel. And though they are not in the means, they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Let's look together at the meaning of the church. By this, I mean, I hope to answer the question, what is the church? 
to really understand. I love the noise. God be praised. What is the church? The term that's used for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It means an assembly or gathering. If we go back to understand that term, in the classical Greek times, an ecclesia, an assembly, was made up of competent, full citizens that met at regular intervals to discuss and change laws, appoint officials to positions, and enact policy. The ecclesia in the classical Greek time was very political and judicial in nature. If we look at the meaning of this term ecclesia in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see that the term ecclesia is used to indicate an assembly of people for the purposes of determining the outcome of legal matters and gatherings for worship. And now as we look at the usage of this term ecclesia, the church, in the New Testament, we see this term first used in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This, this, these, this is one of the verses that will have a lot of influence on our message this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. After Peter confessed, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And they threw out some answers. And he, Jesus asked them directly, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, blessed are you, Peter. And he changes Peter's name. And he says, now, I tell you, you are Peter. 16 verse 18 on Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus again uses this term ecclesia or church in Matthew chapter 18 when teaching his disciples how to handle a brother that sins against them. Jesus teaches his disciples, he says, you are first to go to that individual privately, one-on-one, -on -one, and tell him of his faults and his sins. And if he repents, you have gained that brother. But if, if, if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't listen, then you are to take one or two witnesses with you. And if he repents, you've gained the brother. But if he still doesn't repent, then he says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, he says, tell it to the church. And let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, since he's acting like a non-believer in his sins, treat him like a non-believer. So he says, tell it to the church. Jesus uses these terms twice in the New Testament. And from this small sample of usage, we immediately see that the church is at minimum an assembly of people. And by implication, we can, we can infer then that the church is not a building, it's a people. And this church is made up not of all people universally, but people particularly. 
Particularly, the church is made up of people who belong to Christ. Remember what we just read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church. The church belongs to Christ. And those who belong to Christ are those who have received him by faith as their Lord and Savior. So we can at minimum say that the church is a redeemed community over which Jesus is Lord. In other words, you can't be just physically born into the church. You've got to be born again to be in the church. But to understand the church even more, and only can we just look at the term for church in the New Testament, but we can also look at metaphors and images of the church. I read somewhere that there are many, as many as 96 different images or metaphors or mentions of the church by different names. I want to look at four of them. First of all, the one that we know most well is that the church is the body of Christ. If Christ is the, I mean, if the church is the body of Christ, then church, then Christ is the head of the church. Jesus, then, as the head of the church, is the founder of the church. And if I really wanted to meddle this morning, I would say if there is any human name attached to the founding of a church, that's not exactly correct. There's only one founder of the church, Jesus Christ. Now, I did not, so here's my point. I did not found the British church. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 that the church is part of God's eternal purposes. From the very beginning, God knew that there was going to be the British church. So it may be new to us, but it wasn't new to God. I did not found this church. Jesus found this church. But he used Brandon to organize this body. So Jesus is the head of the church, which makes the church its body. And of the body, there are many members. That word member has become like a dirty word in the church, it feels. Member, member, I'll come back to that. So the church is the body of Christ. He is the head, which means that he gives life to the church. He directs the church. He is Lord of the church. The senior pastor is not the Lord of the church. The elders are not the Lord of the church. Jesus is Lord. Brandon and the elders don't have final authority in the church. Jesus has final authority in the church. And we bow to under his lordship as we lead our church. So the church is the body of Christ. But another image that's used for the church is that the church is the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 through 22. Let me read it to you. So then... The Apostle Paul says to this church at Ephesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church is a spirit-indwelled, spirit-filled body of believers. And as we said last week, it is through the Spirit that we are baptized into one union with Christ Jesus. So we are a spirit-indwelled body. So we are the body, we are the temple, but we are also the family of God. We just heard that in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, where the Apostle Paul says, we are saints and members of the household of God. We are sons and daughters of God. The church is a family of which God is the father. The church is a family, but the church is also the flock of God. Jesus is our great shepherd. Jesus knows, leads, feeds, protects his sheep. We are the sheep. So then, based on the meaning of the term ecclesia and the metaphor, metaphors, we can say at this point that the church is the spirit-filled, redeemed community of saints over which Jesus is head and Lord. The church is the spirit-filled, redeemed community of saints over which Jesus is head and Lord. Let me say something about these metaphors. I think the fact that, that, that the Bible uses the metaphor of household teaches us or implies to us why it is important that we gather together Together regularly. Even, even next month, next month, I don't know, we were supposed to, every second Saturday of, uh, in August, my family, the Alexander family, gathers together in Dallas for a family reunion. Every year, there's the Alexander family reunion, and we get together, we, we love on one another, we eat together, so there's nourishment, and then we encourage one another. Every week, God has given us a family reunion. That's one of the reasons it's important together, because it's time for you to see your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We also gather because the Bible tells us to. I wonder how would you feel if your family treated you like some people treat the church? What if your son and daughter only came home every once in a while? What if they made it feel like coming home was no big deal? Okay, I'll get back on my manuscript. So we see the meaning of the church. Let's look now at the marks of the church. Here's the question I want to answer. What makes a church a church? 
Another way of asking this question is, what is it that distinguishes the church from other religious organizations? And historically, there have been three marks of the church. First, gospel preaching. In his book entitled The Church by Edmund Clowney, he says, the great mark of the church is the message it proclaims. The gospel of salvation from sin and eternal death through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the great mark of the church. It is through, we, we have to, the church has to be word-centered because it is founded on the word. It is through the word that the church receives new life in Christ. Let me make my claim. The Apostle Paul said that, that he was not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God that leads to salvation. Through the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, men and women are saved. New life. Later on in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul makes it clear that it is the word that gives us new life. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the word that when it is implanted that awakens life in the believer. So the word of the gospel proclaimed is the means by which the spirit of the Lord gives new life to a sinner. Through the word of God, the be believers are added to the church. We see this multiple places in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we learn many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men that came were, that, that came were about 5,000. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, when there was dispute between uh, uh, the Hellenistic women being uh, fed and, and, and the Greek women being, the Greek and the Jew, Jewish women being fed, the apostle said, we can't handle this business of serving tables. We are going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The result, Acts 6 verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So clearly, the preaching of the word is the great mark of the church. If the gospel is not being proclaimed boldly, then it is not a church. At best, it's just simply a religious gathering. Not only does the word generate new life in Christ, but it also sustains life in Christ. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter 15, verse seven, seven, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. First Peter chapter two, verse two, like newborn babes long for the spiritual milk, which is the word of God, that by it you may grow up until salvation. The right preaching of the word of God is the hallmark of the church because it creates life and it sustains life in Christ. Without it, 
there is no church. So the first mark of a true church is the preaching of the gospel. But second, the second mark of the church is the right administration of the ordinances. Some also would, instead of saying ordinances, they would use sacraments. Briefly, we, I prefer to use the term ordinances because oftentimes with the word sacrament, it is um, uh, attached to a theology that says that the sacraments confer grace in the sense of saving grace to the one receiving it. And so I prefer the term ordinances versus sacrament. If you use sacrament, I won't be mad at you. I won't hate you. I won't say you're wrong. I'll be like, okay. So, when I say the right administration of the ordinances, by the ordinances, I'm referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I won't say much about baptism and the Lord's Supper because we're going to come back next week and look at just those two ordinances together. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. However, I think a couple of things are necessary for me to say right now. These two sacraments or ordinances are visible expressions of the gospel. Baptism and the Lord's Supper put the gospel on display. And baptism, think about it. We stand there in the water. We are uniting with Christ on the cross in in his death. And then as we go into the water, we are uniting, symbolizing our union with Christ in his burial. And then as we come up out of the water, it symbolizes our union with Christ in his resurrection. That's the gospel. So we display the gospel through baptism. The baptism is also our coming out party. It's a way of us telling the church and anybody else who sees us that we are now on the team of Jesus Christ. It's the initiatory right of the church. If baptism is the initiation and right, the initiatory right of the church, then the Lord's Supper is the continuing right of the church and the supper we see the gospel on display again even the apostle paul when he teaches on this on the lord's supper he says every time you partake of this meal you show or you proclaim the lord's death until he comes so in the supper we see a visible display of the gospel the bread and the cup nourish our faith and confirm our faith as believers as they symbolize the broken body of Christ and the cup representing his shed blood. But even as these ordinances, we see them intricately linked to the ministry of the word. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Here it is, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, here's word ministry, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see the word and the ordinances linked again. It's recorded that the church, when they gathered, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the ministry of the word, and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. So, One reason that we say the sacraments are a mark of the church is because these two ordinances are given to the church. Rewind, press play. 
One reason that we say these sacraments are a mark of the church is because these two ordinances are given to the church. Why do I emphasize that? Because Jesus did not give these uh, ordinances to the parachurch. Thank you. I feel like I'm still just only preaching to a live stream this morning. It's not for the parachurch. It's not for denominations or any other Christian organization. Let me just give you a little insight even into next week's sermon. It's not even for your small group. That would not be the right administration of the ordinances. They are uniquely commanded to be administered and received by the church when she gathers. When she gathers. I think we we need to at least have a talk about even if we should be doing them at weddings. The Lord's Supper. They're given to the church when she gathers. I'll prove it to you next week. So a mark of the church, we've seen two so far, the preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances, but then also this third mark where I'm really going to lose a lot of people, church discipline. Church discipline. If if I wasn't worried about this aerosol cloud, I'd have y'all say with me, church discipline, do not do it. We see this this clearly taught in a few places in scripture. Remember, we just read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says uh, uh, that he would build his church. But then he says in verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Keys, beloved, are signs of access and authority. We use keys to get into places and to keep people out. But I'm only giving them to people who have the authority. My keys at my house, you're only getting if you have the authority to come in. Peter, and by extension, the church are given keys to open the way for people to enter the kingdom of heaven by preaching and declaring the gospel. By giving the keys, Jesus is also affirming the role of the church to accept and affirm members of the church who have truly believed the gospel. That's one reason, thank you Holy Ghost, that's one reason we do membership interviews at the British church. Some of you have said to me, I've never had to go through an interview before. Well, that's us exercising the keys. We are making sure that whoever's going to be a member of the church has actually been redeemed. That you are actually a sheep and not a goat or a wolf at worst. That's us exercising the keys. That's about access 
and prohibition. But for the, our purpose this morning, as we think about the keys, we want to focus on the keys as a sign of authority. The way Peter, the disciples, and by extension the church, again, exercises authority is by declaring what is permissible for followers of Christ in, in, in regard to both doctrine and conduct. We exercise the keys by saying this is what is biblical doctrine and conduct and this is what is not. And if one fails to adhere to biblical doctrine and conduct, there are consequences, which is administered by way of church discipline. I'm convinced that this is what Jesus means when he says they will have authority to bind and to loose on the earth. We see this same language of binding and loosing in Matthew chapter 18. I told you, these are crucial to our conversation this morning. Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus teaches his disciple how to deal with the sinning brother. As we said earlier, after going to the brother privately and with witnesses, if he still doesn't repent, they are to tell it to the church. And if that sinning brother refuses to listen to the church, Jesus says that that sinning brother is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is what Jesus says immediately after that. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, there it is, shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So then we can make a few observations about church discipline from these verses. First, church discipline of the individual believer is an act of the church. It's an act of the church. Remember, Jesus said that if a brother refuses to listen to the individual and to witnesses, they were to tell it to the church. And then the church now has authority because we've been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven We've, we have authority from Christ to excommunicate that individual as they treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. Church discipline is an act of the church. Again, it is not the role or the responsibility of parachurch ministries. It's not the, the, the role of denominations or any other Christian body. It belongs to the local church. Second, we can say that church discipline is delegated authority. In both places that binding and loosing uh, is mentioned, Jesus says that the act happens on earth as it is in heaven. Church discipline is heavenly authority that is to be stewarded by the local church. Thus, what that means is that if we are really going to be a true church, then we have to be faithful in church discipline. Beloved, I don't get joy out of taking people through church discipline. But I would not be a faithful steward or faithful in my role as an elder and pastor if we didn't take unre... Okay. Black lives do matter. Okay. So, let's try to get back to church discipline. Somebody's going through it after this. <laughs> we ought to be faithful in church discipline. 
The church is not to shirk away from her responsibility. This is heavenly business. It's kingdom business. On the flip side, if the church is to be faithful in church discipline, then that means church members should submit to church discipline as it has already been ordained and decided in heaven. Finally, we can say that church discipline is important that we see that church discipline is never for the sake of being punitive, but for the purposes of restoration. We are not trying to just simply punish you. We are trying to restore you to right relationship with Christ and his body. The goal, even Christ says, the goal is to gain that brother or sister back. Church discipline, though it may sound scary, is for the sanctification of the believer. And for the sanctification of the church. Through church discipline, the church remains holy and pure. So since church discipline is an act and responsibility of the church, we can safely say that this is the mark, a mark of a true church. That's the marks of the church. Let's look at the mission and ministries of the church. The ultimate aim of the church is the glory of God. The ultimate aim of the church is the glory of God. In Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7, God says about his people in the Old Testament, he says, I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. The purpose of the people of God, even in the Old Testament, was his glory. We see this now in, for the people of God in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, the apostle Paul writes, he says that God, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, here it is, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. And that same chapter, beginning with verse 11, the apostle Paul writes, in him, Christ Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, purpose, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Not for disputing predestination and election. Verse 13, and him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Here again, we hear, to the praise of his glory. So the clear aim of the people of God, we see this continuity in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The clear aim is to bring God glory. So then how do we specifically bring God glory in the church? 
And I want to address it as the assembly, the church gathered. We bring glory, first of all, through worship. Worship is always the response of the creature to the creator. Worship is the response to revelation. As we said earlier, the word gives and sustains life in the church. And that is why the Apostle Paul told his, uh, told his understudy that one, one way in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge. So I'm about to tell you, one way we, we bring glory is, through, is worship through preaching the word, through preaching the word. Paul says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So we bring God glory through worship, but then we worship through the ministry of preaching. But then not only do we, we, we bring God glory through worship and preaching, but we also bring God glory through worship and praying the word. J.R. Packer in some has been said that prayer is the measure of a church. Prayer was so central to the life of the people of God in Judaism that Jesus said that the temple was to be called a house of, help me preach this thing, prayer. For this reason, beloved, prayer ought to be given intentional time in the gathering of the church. Prayer should not be simply a tool to transition the worship team off the stage. So one of the reasons that maybe you felt like Brandon's preaching, I mean praying really long this morning, is because as a church we believe in worship through prayer. And it's not something we do just to get out of the way or for transition, it is an act of worship and it is what we are commanded to do in scripture. In prayer, we bring glory to God. So we bring glory to God through worship and preaching the word, through, through worship and praying the word, but also in worship through singing the word. Singing, beloved, is so integral to the life of God's people that the Lord thought it a good idea to put a hymn book slap dab in the middle of the Bible. We call them the Psalms. Singing of the word is appropriate for the church when she gathers because we, as we said earlier, we are spirit-filled people. Why does that matter? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says that spirit-filled believers address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In Colossians, he says singing is a ministry of the word. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Then he tells us another way, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we see clearly that singing is a ministry of the church by which we bring glory to God. We worship the Lord through preaching, through praying, through singing. And then we could also say we worship the Lord through seeing the word. 
And by that, I mean we actually see the gospel on display through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then we also worship the Lord through the actual reading of the word of God. So we bring glory to God through worship, but we also bring glory to God through making disciples, which involves evangelism, edification, and mission work. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. The church has been uniquely created to minister to the world of the wisdom of God. So as we close now, let me finally give you the management of the church. By this, I want to talk about the organ, how the church is organized or governed. We have Presbyterianism, we have Episcopalianism, then we have Congregationalism. I don't have time to go through them all, but Mike Andrews writes in the congregational form of the local church, the, the, the local church is autonomous with the congregation retaining authority under Christ for its own destiny. Ultimate authority is vested in the members themselves while the congregation owns its property, hires its own pastors, sets its own budget. Pastors and other officers have no more ecclesiastical authority than any other member. And most Baptist churches, Bible churches, free churches, covenant churches are congregational in form. But to the church over which Christ is head, congregate, the church has been given autonomy and to, 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 to determine its direction. In the church, Jesus has given us apostles, prophets, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So by management, I mean the stewardship of the church. Ultimate authority is given in the congregation under which then we have elders and deacons. Elders are the primary spiritual or governing authority. They are under shepherds. They feed, lead, protect know the sheep, and then to assist the elders are deacons, servants, to carry out the work of the vision and strategy of the elders. So here's my little speech, or longer speech, on the church. How do we respond then to the church? First of all, beloved We need to love the church. In Ephesians chapter five, and speaking to husbands and wives, specifically to husband, Jesus says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is so valuable to Christ that he was willing to die for the church. Beloved, we, you ought to not have a casual relationship or attitude with the church. Jesus loved the church so much that he died for her. And unfortunately, it feels like many times 
that we don't really love the church. Loving, I think about my wife, loving her because I loved her so much. I was willing to, to covenant with her for the rest of our lives to be in an exclusive relationship with one another, to serve one another, to minister to one another, to put up with one another. In like manner, let's stop dating the church. Love her, commit to her, serve her. I guess that actually brings me to my next point of how we respond. Not only do we love the church, but we let's covenant, covenant, covenant with the church. Membership. Become a member of your local church. Even in heaven, there's membership. Remember in our sermon on justice for all, we said that at the, at, at the final judgment, the Lord's going to take out a book. In that book, there's going to be a list of names. The book of life. We see a list of names even in like in the Old Testament in Numbers. There's names listed. People who are members of the people of God. And so I want to challenge you to commit to a local church that is gospel preaching. There's the right administration of the ordinances and where they will lovingly exercise church discipline with necessary. Love her, commit to her, serve her. Jesus Christ is the, ex the extreme example of what it looks like to serve. Jesus Christ himself says, this is how he loved the church. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and get my life as a ransom a minute. And unfortunately in the church, there's a lot of people who only want to be served. Sing my songs, preach my, the sermons that I want you to uh, preach to me. Stay off my toes. I want six flags over Jesus for children's and youth ministry. I want you to make sure the room is as comfortable to my liking. I want you to start at the time I want you to start. I only want you to sing contemporary Christian music. Or I only want you to sing gospel music. I only want the sermon to be 25 minutes tops. We live in an age of consumerism in the church where, where we've, we've, we've taught people that the church is to serve them. I think we are breaking the heart of God. It, it is our responsibility to serve. Why do I know you are to serve the church? Because we said as, spirit -filled, as a spirit-filled community, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to gift each and every believer with a spiritual gift. That spiritual gift was not given for you to just to sit on it. It's for the edification of the body. Love her, commit to her, serve her. Finally, this is free. Forgive her. There's no hurt like church hurt. And we in the church are imperfect people. 
but yet we often are held to perfect expectations. And you have been hurt. Some, you are right for feeling that way, and some, it may be unjustified. Either way, you need to forgive her. Return to her. Come back to her. Father, thank you so much for loving us so much that you sent Jesus to die for the church. We confess that we have not been faithful and committed to the church, so forgive us. Give us a love and a passion for the church that is incomparable for any other organization or institution. Lord, we pray that you would multiply your church, that somebody would respond to the gospel. They will understand that God is holy. They are not, and as a result of their sinfulness, they deserve eternal separation from God. But God so loved them that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. Multiply your church. We pray that you would also that the church would be edified through the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the praying of the word, the reading of the word, the seeing of the word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a couple of songs and then we'll be dismissed.